Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the interesting things we can do for people and the planet and for oranges. <laughs> I'm Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor at the University of Florida. And today we're going to talk about citrus greening or HLB, the disease that's really threatening citrus production in Florida and turns out the rest of the United States and all over the world. And one of the mechanisms that we're going to use to combat the problem is an interesting possibility of delivery of an antimicrobial peptide from viruses. And to talk to us about this today is Dr. Steve Savage. And you may have remember Steve from earlier version of the podcast. When did we talk? A long time ago, right? It was, it was like years ago, yes. Yeah, I think we talked about the pounds of organic uh, pesticides or something that were applied or something way back, maybe episode eight. But, but, but Steve's a consultant. He's uh, worked in many roles in advising crop protection strategies. He does the uh, Pop Agriculture podcast and the blog that I just adore, which is Applied Mythology. And he's also a contributor for Forbes and many other outlets. So welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you. Good to talk to him. Yeah, it's fun. It's nice to talk to you. I always think about the time in Hawaii when we tried to educate the masses and things they didn't really want to hear. And uh, it was a very uh, revealing couple of days, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a week and it was an intense week. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think about it all the time. So uh, let's talk about this particular issue. Let's start out with what the problem is before we try to solve it. What is HLB? Yeah. So HLB is this bacterial disease of citrus in general. And, you know, it, right now the, the emphasis is on the orange industry in Florida, but uh, it, it affects lots of citrus. And it's kind of a weird bacteria. It, it's something that you scientists can almost not even grow in a lab, but it lives inside the plumbing of a plant in, in the xylem. And um, it, it, no, actually, sorry. I take that back. It lives in the phloem of the plant. And uh, it actually uh, really messes up the trees, can, can kill them. Sometimes they can be sort of kept alive with really intensive uh, fertilization and things like that. But it's, it's had a very devastating effect on the Florida citrus industry. And uh, it could certainly move on um, to California. It's spread by an insect called the Asian citrus psyllid. These are both things. The bacteria and the psyllid are things that are basically invasive pests that came in from Asia. That's just a reality of modern times. And, and actually, it's been going on for a long time that, that pests can get spread around the world. It is an interesting question. I do think people have found it in xylem exudates as well. So I think you're saved. Okay. Um, but uh, what's particularly problematic about this and what people need to understand is that you do have to have both the pest 
and the pathogen in order to have a problem. And, and citrus trees, I guess, are the third leg of that pathogen stool. But uh, when we're looking at the problem, how, how much of it is now, well, I can tell you from Florida, it's devastating. You can drive yeah. down what used to be very green, lush groves of oranges with orange dots in the trees and a blue sky, and it was beautiful. And now there are gray skeletons. And this is everywhere with a big for sale sign, you know, where they'll build a mall or a housing development. What's the story in California? So far, um, obviously, California was watching everything going on in Florida and, and doing everything that it could to try to head it off. Uh, kind of showed up the same way that it originally did, I think, in, in Florida, at least for the bacteria. It kind of pops up in, in uh, homeowner backyard tree kind of things. And so, so far it's been pretty much restricted to suburban areas around uh, in the Los Angeles basin. Um, the, the psyllid is, is pretty widespread, um, but the uh, disease so far that they've really worked hard to try to keep it in check. And it, it hasn't really hit our big, uh, you know, sort of our most viable parts of our industry, like lemons and, and navel oranges and particularly mandarins, because those, the mandarins, in, for instance, are mostly up in the Central Valley. And so there's there's some mountains in between. So, um, but everybody knows it's, it's probably just a matter of time until it becomes a bigger issue. You know, one of the big problems is the latency period that an infected tree can remain symptom-free for many years. And so you don't know you have a problem and not everybody is, well, they're not testing every tree. And right. so That's if this, yeah, yeah, if this is there, it may be existing and spreading even though they don't know it. Right. And, and people are doing everything they can. The, they, they've done all they can to try to uh, bring in natural enemies of the psyllid to, to try to keep it in check to a certain extent. And then, you know, people are doing what they can to, to treat for that. Actually, one of the things you can do is that when the psyllids are at a stage where they don't fly yet, there are ants that will move them around, you know, the way that ants do with aphids and other things. And so, Sometimes just by putting something on the trunk of the tree that will stop the ants, uh, that's one way to slow down the, the process. Oh, it's good to know. I, I know the trees at my place are relatively, well, are symptom free, which is great, but I have kind of odd stuff and maybe not <laughs> as amenable you know, to the disease as other um, commercial cultivars. Um, but th that's one part of the solution is genetics. But, but what are some of the other ways that citrus growers are currently combating the disease? Well, one of the things is it seems that it, it messes with the ability of the trees to sort of supply itself with nutrients. And so people have been trying all sorts of things, a, a variety of, of different fertilizers, organic fertilizers, soil amendments, uh, sort of biostimulant type bacteria. I, I mean, it, it's sort of like people are throwing everything that they have at it. And and um, are able to sort of limp along, but but nobody I think is really happy with what they've got right now. Yeah, that seems to be the case. And uh, some folks are, you know, their groves look good, but it's taking a lot of extra um, input to do it. And so raising the cost of production by you know twenty five percent, which is about the size of 
shrinkage in our orange juice containers. <laughs> so, so it, it has been, you know, certainly an issue here and it is uh, an increasing problem. And so what, what, what are some of the more recent solutions that have been attempted or at least discussed, at least in the area of say genetic engineering? Right. Well, so I think this was a case and, uh, I cite in in my article about this that, that there was a really extensively researched article about this by Amy Harmon that was published in the uh, New York Times. I think it was in 2013. Um, and the growers themselves funded a bunch of academic researchers to, to just try all sorts of things. And it was in that research process that uh, people came up with this approach of using some things called antimicrobial peptides, uh, basically small bits of, you know, sort of protein-like things that that are commonly made by lots of plants. And the ones that they had some luck with happened to come from spinach. And so it, it looked like, well, that could be a solution. You could genetically engineer the tree itself to make these um, antimicrobial peptides, and maybe that could work. But uh, you look at something like the juice industry, which is what most of these oranges are going to, that's controlled by really brand sensitive companies and brand sensitive companies historically have been very reluctant to sort of cross the GMO line because they know the kind of grief they can get. So even though the the growers had funded the research to come up with what could have been a solution it probably wasn't going to fly. And actually, yeah, it went back the other way. Orange juice companies have gone out of their way to decorate their packages saying, we don't contain any genetic engineering or they're all, you know, no GMO. And so right. they're actually even leaning in the opposite direction to the solution. <laughs> yeah, they are. And, and uh, as you know, and I'm sure you've pointed out many times that that non-GMO thing is ridiculous. The, the time I finally got really mad and, and posted about the fact the non-GMO label is a lie is when I saw that kind of non-GMO label come out on a ruby red grapefruit. And the history of the ruby red grapefruit is that it went from a kind of sour, you know, regular colored grapefruit with big seeds in it to the, you know, delicious, uh, pink, uh, seedless kind of thing that we have today. But that was done by a, a kind of genetic modification called uh, mutagenesis breeding. So essentially, they had no idea what they were doing. This was a long time ago, and they were just exposing the budwood to gamma radiation and making mutations. And that flies as non-GMO, whereas if you do a GMO where you actually knew what you were doing, uh, you, you get into this problem, a marketing problem, basically. That's right. So the, 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 did anyone ever examine, and you may not know the answer to this, I certainly don't, that those uh, red grapefruits that were induced by, by, um, by gamma radiation, what are the other collateral hits in the genome? Did anyone ever assess that? No, I, I have not seen something like that. And I'm like you, I, I don't know for sure, because certainly today that would be possible. I mean, part of the reason that nobody would have done it back in the day is it used to be a big deal to try to sequence things or people didn't even know how at all, possibly back at that time. Um, one of the other crops that's been very much modified by that same approach has been cannabis. 
And uh, I always like to say that that I called somebody in the uh, Colorado industry and asked them if, if they had any worries, like you mentioned about uh, what about the other uh, mutations that you didn't know about. And I always say that they just answered me, uh, Dave's not here, man. <laughs> <laughs> Which is going to be a pretty old reference, you know, Cheech and Chong, but it was a great one. So. No, that's, but that's so perfect. You hate to harsh the mellow by adding a little science. <laughs> you know, but that, that's, that's how that rolls. Oh, man, that, that's really funny. Well, we'll talk about that another time. Um, okay, okay. But the big deal with, with this particular one now is that there has been a public comment period open with respect to a different solution. And, and what was that solution that was proposed? Yeah, and that's that's really interesting. It's really interesting to me, just as somebody who's been, I call myself an accidental tourist of the uh, plant biotech industry, because I first started hearing about this back in the late 1970s. And I happened to be spending time using a piece of equipment in two labs at University of California, Davis. And one of them uh, was the virology lab of, of Dr. Bob Shepard, um, famous virologist, you know, National Academy member and everything like that. And it, he was working with this really pretty obscure virus called cauliflower mosaic virus, uh, which was unique because it's a DNA virus and most viruses of plants are RNA viruses. And uh, there was some hope that that might be the way that you could actually genetically engineer plants, which was something that wouldn't happen for quite a few more years after that. But the next door lab was the lab of Dr. Tuni Kasuge, who, who worked on agrobacterium. And people were thinking, well, this is sort of nature's genetic engineer. Maybe someday we can figure out how to use that organism that routinely puts its DNA into plants uh, maybe we can sort of tame that. And eventually that did happen, not not from Kasugi's lab, but from others. And so, um, but there was that idea that maybe viruses would be the way. Well, it turned out that a very efficient way to do genetic engineering was with agrobacterium. Um, and so I didn't really hear anything about the virus approach for a long time. But in this case with, with the oranges, that is what's actually being contemplated is there's a virus that is in citrus trees. It's basically in essentially almost every citrus tree that's been planted for very long in Florida and most other places. And uh, if the tree is on certain rootstocks, it can kill the trees. It, when it first showed up, this was another invasive thing that showed up in the 60s. Um, it was a huge problem for the citrus industry. But once they kind of found the right rootstocks to work with, um, it's become kind of a non-problem. And it's just there. It's just this virus that exists in um, in the, the phloem of, of all these trees and, and really doesn't cause any symptoms. So the idea here was, well, maybe we could get that virus to make those same kind of antimicrobial peptides so instead of having the tree make them, have the virus make them, and uh, they're right there where they need to be to affect the uh, bacterium, and uh, maybe that could work. And in fact, it, it actually did work. Well, that's a really good point for us to take a break. We're here with Dr. Steve Savage on the Talking Biotech podcast, talking about citrus tristeza virus and using this as a potential weapon against the devastating disease, HLB. We'll be back with the podcast in just a moment. 
that is the show that most podcasts end by episode 12. Somehow this masterpiece has managed to evade the cruelties of host apathy and audience rejection, now rushing towards 200 episodes in four years. Our fifth year begins June 13th, 2019. So what's next? Instead of dialing it back, we're dialing it up. Watch for additional new podcasts, new exciting media, and great stories about science. Most of all, thank you for all of the kind words, great suggestions, and overwhelming patience as we learn by doing in podcast space. Most modern podcasts have producers, directors, web support, and audio engineers. This one has one person doing all of that work. He even does the funny voices in the intermissions. Sometime in December of 2019, we'll host our one millionth download. Sure, Joe Rogan or Adam Carolla do that in a day, but they are talented entertainers. Here, a marginally relevant scientist with a desire to teach takes a little bit longer to hit those long-term benchmarks, but still relatively amazing. So thank you, listener. Thank you for spreading the word and telling others about this podcast. Your efforts are the wind under our wings, the gas in our tank, and the big stupid Fred Flintstone foot on the accelerator. Thank you for listening. We really do appreciate your kind interest. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast with Dr. Steve Savage. Uh, he's a consultant and a podcaster, blogger, uh, present in many different forms of media. And we're following up on his recent Forbes article about the citrus tristasia virus and how this is potentially being used as a way to combat citrus screening disease. And when we left before the break, we're talking about this particular kind of approach of, of kind of weaponizing a virus. And you mentioned that it was kind of old school, but it's also been really new school that in animal systems, certainly using adenoviruses to infect or transfect cells has been frequently used. But then nowadays with this immunotherapy stuff, where even like uh, the most insidious viruses like herpes and, um, you know, H- not, I don't know if HIV has been used, but um, other types, polio virus, where they've actually had the guts removed and had the good stuff installed in order to go in and specifically seek out and attack cancer cells. So with that kind of prelude, you know, wouldn't it seem like this kind of approach would be really exciting and acceptable for people? You would think so. Um, and, uh, again, you know, this is something that we've watched for a long time with the whole biotech thing, which is that it's provided tremendous advances in human health, you know, starting with early things like using genetic engineered bacteria to make human insulin for type one diabetes. Um, and that whole area, that whole application of biotechnology has really not been, greatly inhibited by activists and and by people, uh, you know, freaking out about this idea that you're messing with nature or something like that. Um, uh, But the same kind of technologies applied to plants have had this very long history of of people pushing back. 
So, you know, you might imagine that, that in this case that would happen again, that even though kind of using viruses as a way to, to deliver this antimicrobial peptide exactly where it needs to be, um, save an industry, I'm sure there will people be people who oppose it. There will be orange juice companies who might be hesitant to, to use it. But if you're an orange grower in California, well, in California, but currently in Florida, um, this might be exactly what you need to, to save the entire business. Well, this is, um, we didn't talk about how you deliver this thing. And it isn't like you fly a crop duster over and just spray virus. I mean, how do you actually deliver the genetically engineered virus? In nature, there are viruses and bacteria and plants can get spread by insects, just like, you know, we, we can have our, you know, viruses and bacteria spread by insects. You know, you think of something like the Zika virus. Um, but in reality, in a crop, a perennial crop, one of the other ways that viruses get moved around is through grafting. And grafting is a thing that humans have been doing for thousands and thousands of years because when you find a desirable specimen of an orange or a grape or an olive or anything like that, you you can't raise it from a seed because you raise the seed and you don't get that same desirable variety. But people learned a long time ago that you can take a bud or a shoot and uh, sort of make a little cut in the bark of an existing tree or an existing root system and then get that to grow again. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very long-term way that people have propagated perennial plants. Well, when you do that, when you graft something, if you graft something that has a virus onto a plant that doesn't have a virus, now they both are going to have the virus. And so that's the way that you're able to bring this solution into orange trees. So instead of having necessarily to start with an entirely new orange tree, you can even take an existing tree, particularly if it you know, hasn't been severely infected already by uh, the virus and, um, and actually transmit your new version of the virus into it. So that's the way this would be done is, is with grafting. Yeah, so let me just clarify there. I, I think you may be a little misspoken. Let me just okay. make sure you're right. Yeah, you I'm, said, I'm not a horticulturalist. <laughs> no, no, you said that you that it, it transmits the you you would you would use this graft to add to a tree that already has the virus. Oh yeah, you're right though, because it has a tristeza virus. Right. Yeah, well I, and I, and the problem is if it has too much of the tristeza virus. There's a thing that we've known about for a long time called virus cross protection. That if, if sometimes one of the solutions for virus diseases that actually cause problems in plants, uh, is if you can find a really mild strain and get that into the plant, then it's sort of full. And then with a new dangerous strain comes along, it can't get going. So in this case, um, since virtually all the citrus that's been growing for any very long period of time in Florida has those sort of benign symptomless strains of Tristeza. You're putting the new one in can be kind of hard, but if it's a tree that has been planted fairly recently, it may not have that much of that virus yet. And of course, because of this huge problem that's been going on, a lot of the trees in citrus trees in, in Florida are young. And so 
the, the nice part here is that you don't have to wait for the several years it takes from a, a brand new tree. You, you can have a tree that's already old enough to start bearing fruit and maybe get it protected. That That's the real hope in this case, because otherwise it, it might, the whole solution might not be fast enough to save the industry. Well, it's actually another important point, though. You said earlier that um, and we maybe should have mentioned that citrus trees, like many trees, are a rootstock and a scion. That they're they're you right. know Valencia and Hamlin uh, scion material crossed onto some sort of rootstock. Those are the dominant varieties here for juice oranges. But the rootstock really dictates a lot of traits, and um, the older rootstocks were susceptible to Tristeza virus, but the newer ones or alternative ones, some are still old, uh, are resistant, and. Right. Um, and so, well, they're not affected. They, they, right, you right. know, having the virus there doesn't cause a problem. That's yeah. right. They're they're tolerant of the virus. I, I I totally got the word wrong there. So they're tolerant of the virus. So how if they're tolerant of the virus, why would the new one work? Well, because it's there. It's tolerant of it. The virus is there, and it's expressing. It's it's got its sort of gene, but I don't know, you're the molecular biologist. How do you refer to it <laughs> in RNA? Is it still a gene? Uh, yeah. You no, have the sequence to make the, the, the protein and, and uh, you know, you put in this, the appropriate promoter and signal peptide and you can get that antimicrobial peptide to be made. Yeah. So, so essentially I think what we're getting at is that you can still infect it, and the virus is still functional and still doing its thing. It's just the plant doesn't care. And so if you can make a virus do its thing and, and you know, I don't want to say live, but hijack the plant and do its thing, you can have it actually create chemistry that would kill the bacterium, Liberobacter, um, that is causing the, the green disease, right? Right, right. right. So and it is, it's kind of a weird thing because you're using – sort of a symptomless version of a disease to fight a problematic disease. So it's one disease against another in a way. It's, it's kind of uh, interesting. Yeah, that is a really interesting way to put it. It's kind of like how, um, how sickle cell anemia protects, protects people from malaria. I mean, it's the same kind of idea. You have a, uh, a wow. genetic pathology that causes one type of defect, but protects against another. And, and it's a very similar analogy in lots of ways, I guess. But what right. and, and the thing that people should know is when diseases can be extremely specific, I mean, most of them are. So, for instance, if there stays a virus, okay, when we hear virus, that sounds scary, right? That virus has been around for 40 years in Florida. It hasn't caused problems in anything else because it can't infect anything other than citrus trees. And so that isn't going to change with this new version. And uh, the, the antimicrobial peptides, those are things every time you eat spinach, you've been eating those for a long, long time. No, it's a, it's virus always does sound scary, but Tristeza doesn't. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I don't know. It sounds like a weight loss drug that you'd see advertised on TV. Yeah. <laughs> you know, drop some weight with Tristeza. <laughs> copyright on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's an I mean, it sounds like that. Um, so, but the, the, what are some of the other concerns or risks that you've heard from folks and how real are they? Well, I think there's this general problem that, that people bring up 
And it's kind of the thing behind the precautionary principle is you say, well, we just don't know. You know, we, we can't know this. It, it, actually, it reminds me when my son was, was a little boy uh, and you would ask him a question and, and the answer that you would have expected him from him was, I don't know. He used to say, I can't know. <laughs> and the problem is that in reality, there are things you can't know, you know, you, you don't know absolutely. But in this case, people have tried really hard because, you know, proving a negative is, is impossible, essentially, right? To say, oh, there could never be anything that would go wrong with this. But there has been an extensive test where they've put it's a small area, but for several years, they had trees that had been graft inoculated with this modified virus, and they put what they call sentinel trees all around them to see, did it ever move into, you know, even to, you know, potentially susceptible trees around it. And and they would be looking for that specific modified version of the virus. And of course, now that's really easy to do with, with PCR technology, right? Or yeah 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 okay um, and basically no it, it it didn't move even though in theory maybe an aphid could have spread it because there are aphids there but it really didn't so the best indication of real world that we have is that first of all this this thing is probably going to stay put and then probably over time it's expected that the virus will sort of end up losing those extra sequences for the microbial peptide. And that's, that's okay, actually, because when, when you're putting a resistance mechanism into a tree that you hope is going to be living there 20, 30 years, uh, someday, maybe that bacteria could develop resistance. But if you're able to sort of over time change which specific antimicrobial peptide is in there, you might be able to head off the possibility of resistance development for the lifespan of a tree. That's very true. You would also see the virus mutating in concert with the bacterium. So you would be able to identify in a sea of trees that have where the resistance is broken down, you'd be able to find the places where it didn't or where the virus changed to complement. You know, so this, it really does just uh, emphasize that arms race that's always there anyway. And the thing about the precautionary principle that drives me nuts is we trade an imaginary threat for an existential one. So we, we have a reality here right now. And people can sit around and say, what if, what if, what if, and go to these, you know, tail possibilities um, of all of, you know, the end of the world scenarios. But for me right now, there's growers here in the state where it is the end of their world right now. And it is the end of their family's multi-generational business. And they don't know what they'll do next. And, you know, if we can help those folks with a good solution that seems very low risk, isn't that something that we should have to do? And, you know, how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And and it's really um, compounded by the fact that when you have something like a juice industry that, that is based on a processing plant, there, you know, there comes a point at which it isn't economically feasible to keep the processing plant going if if you can't grow enough oranges within a reasonable radius of that plant because you know you, you get to the point 
where how how do you justify keeping that plant open? How do you justify how much uh, shipping cost you have, depending on how far you have to go to find enough fruit? And so not only do the individual farmers sort of risk losing their particular grove, you're going to hit a point at which the industry just crashes. Well, and we're getting close. I think we've seen um, the number of packing houses go from somewhere. I don't know the exact number of where we were, but maybe it was 40, 50 down to a handful. And there might be a couple that are um, working now in terms of fresh fruit, as fresh market fruit, as well as for juice. There just is not the same infrastructure that's there. And you point out the idea that logistics are involved. You have to get fruit from distant places. And as the number of termini for these things decreases, the less feasible it gets to economically make it happen. And um, it, that's why it's hitting us particularly hard here in the state with what was this extremely valuable lucrative industry is um, now really threatened. And there are people who are still making money, but um, they're the folks who are you know, hanging on by a thread and prices are high and they're still very you know, able to produce. But, you know, this just seems like such a good solution that could solve the problem. We could fix the trees that are here potentially. And, uh, and wow, I'm really hoping for some buy-in. Is there any possible solution that the average person can do at this point? Is there any place where they could publicly comment or anything like that? Well, I, I, I think this USDA thing, um, will be closing and, but that's, you know, around the regulatory process and all of that. I would say that one of the places that the communication and the, and the feedback needs to happen is on social media or it's on people who say, look, I understand this. I care about this. I'm going to write to the orange juice company, uh, you know, and say, Hey, um, I, I, I like your product. I want to continue to buy it. And if you look at Florida, well, one of the things that has kept the Florida industry going is that uh, instead of the old days where all orange juice was from concentrate, um, you remember they kind of moved to the not from concentrate thing, which frankly actually really did make a true quality change in, in, in the fruit. And at least at, at some point, it wasn't really possible to bring in the not from concentrate juice from Brazil or the other places that, that citrus can be grown. So it was a, a thing that really kept the, the Florida industry going. Um, and so, you know, that that's one thing that consumers could talk about. They, they could tell their retailer, they could tell the uh, grocery store that they, they could tell their friends, Hey, you know, we don't want to lose this thing that yes, this is about orange farmers, but it's about consumers too. This is, this is about a high quality juice product. And one of those things that uh, you probably should be having. Well, that's a really important point too, is that, you know, you've seen this kind of disfavor of, of juice, whether it's orange or apple or whatever, because of the um, awareness towards sugar in beverages. And what people kind of forget is that orange juice traditionally was drank in a juice glass. Remember that little thing that was about, <laughs> about three inches yeah. tall? <laughs> and that if you had that juice glass, you would get a serving or two 
of orange juice, you know, like if you squeezed out a couple oranges into a glass. But in the era of supersize, when we started to fill up the big gulp cup with orange juice and walk out the door, you know, you could kind of see how that may have a little bit of sweetness to it. And so the there's a lot of problems here in terms of thinking about oranges and how orange juice is is used. And I think it still is a really important part of a healthy diet, more fruits, more vegetables, totally. And uh, this is one part of that, you know, having a serving of orange juice. But it, it, the industry is seeing so many problems because not just the disease, but also the uh, kind of misinterpretation and the um, uh, what it, what it, the negative light that orange juice is put in as well. So they're getting it from all sides. Yeah, they are. And um, yeah, that, there's no doubt that, that if you're drinking a, a liter of uh, sweetened soda, that's not good for you. But we, we have this trend of sort of demonizing our food supply one ingredient at a time. And the truth is, whether it's fats or sugar or gluten or anything like that, um, you know, in in moderation all of these things are actually really good and um, you, you don't you don't really get anywhere by uh, you know I'm, I'm working on a podcast with, with the title is going to be money uh, money for nothing um, going back to the old dire Straits song um, and you know we've, we've kind of gotten used to this idea that well you're supposed to buy things for what they're not and that, that doesn't make sense. You know, you, you should buy things for what they are. There are really healthy components in something like orange juice. And it's a great way. Like you say, a, a little glass of that in the morning, that's a great way to start your day. Yeah, or a great way to end your day with a little shot of vodka or something. But, you know, whatever you want. Yeah. Well, Dr. Steve Savage, thank you very much for helping us out today and helping us understand how we're vilifying the food system one ingredient at a time. <laughs> that was great. That's gold. If people wanted to find out more about you online, where do they look? That would be um, the Applied Mythology blog. Um, and uh, I, I post... Uh, not a, not a lot, so you wouldn't get inundated, but I, I'm at, at GrapeDoc um, on Twitter. And then there's my um, uh, podcast that I do for the nonprofit called the Crop Life Foundation, which is called Pop Agriculture. Very good. And, you know, people should check it all out. It's, you know, like we need another podcast to get addicted to, but thank you. You know, your, your, your content is always spot on. It's always level-headed. It's concise. And you've always been one of my favorite authors and one of my favorite scientists. So thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Feelings mutual. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Drink a glass of orange juice in the morning or at night with any amendments you please. And write a, re- to, write a review on iTunes. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time 
sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.